in. Welcome to Mass Ave, conservative insight from the Heritage Foundation's Freedom Center, just steps from Capitol Hill, with Emily Vanderbush and Brad Bishop. And welcome to Mass Ave. We are talking about student loans. Uh, It's springtime. It's May. College graduates are coming out, and they're um, probably looking at steeper student loans than most before them. Um, So here to talk about it is Marie Claire Reams. She is our education expert here at the Heritage Foundation and focuses specifically on higher education. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, So I guess just to start out, why is college so expensive? Yeah, this is a question that we've been asking ourselves for decades. So back in 1987, the then Secretary of Education, Bill Bennett, first wrote um, an op-ed in the New York Times where he said, you know, I'm starting to think that this unfettered access to federal student loans that we have now might be encouraging colleges and universities to raise their tuition prices. And back then, colleges and universities were raising their prices a little bit, nothing like we see today. Since then, the problem always, uh, has only gotten worse, and we have more research from economists than ever suggesting that because we have you know, this blank check from the federal government virtually to students to finance their higher education, universities have been able to get away with tuition increases because they're not losing students because of that. And this sort of makes sense. If you go to the store and you buy something and you know someone else is paying for it, you're not necessarily looking for the best deal. And if there's no cap on what someone else can take, then whoever's producing that product is going to try and charge the most that they can. So that's what we've seen. And so um, we need to get the federal government out of the business of lending to students if we're ever going to see college prices drop. And, you know, we're coming off of this election cycle uh, where I think more focus was on eliminating costs, Mm -hmm. not lowering costs. And I think that really caught on with with college students across the country. Um, What other options are there to kind of just lower costs? I mean, I don't think eliminating is really a viable option. Um, Could could you go into that a little bit, I guess, in greater detail? Sure. So there's a difference between price and cost, right? And I think that that's something that always gets lost in this in this discussion. I mean, you can eliminate the price for students, but that doesn't mean that you, uh, professors are suddenly foregoing their salaries or that buildings are not charging rent and textbook companies are donating all these books. I mean, educating someone still costs something. Um, and so this is why I think that tuition-free options, and we, we're seeing New York um, play with this idea now, more and more states are, are uh, looking towards offering free tuition to students. This is only going to make uh, college more expensive because of the reasons I just mentioned. Once you have this uh, financial responsibility so separated from the person who's actually receiving the product, you don't get the best deal, um, and we're only going to see prices increase. And with tuition-free options, you're seeing those uh, costs shift to taxpayers more and more at an ever-increasing rate. So these these I, these plans that mask the uh, the tuition increase to students are really doing worse for the economy and for taxpayers in the long run. And so maybe you can give us a little bit of background on why is it that the federal government controls most of student loans out there right now anyways? Yeah, so I think this is something that um, that the American people aren't fully aware of, is that the federal government now controls over 90% of all the student loans mm-hmm. out there. And this was not always the case. Um, and we've seen private lenders really get crowded out in the market. And this is because we have policymakers who say, you know, we want to increase access to higher education. And absolutely, we should increase the ability for those who want to pursue higher, higher education to do that. I believe, and what we've always argued here at the Heritage Foundation, is that we need to lower, put some downwards pressure on the cost of college. That will increase access. 
But through these well-intentioned policies that are that uh, subsidize higher education through the federal government, we've actually made it more expensive and harder for people uh, to afford college on their own. So making space for private lenders to come in put, would put some downwards pressure on prices and actually increase accessibility for all people. Hmm. All right. And it is budget season. And the Trump administration's proposed budget for 2018 um, includes some significant cuts on waste in federal higher education spending. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So there are lots of um, different you know, hidden programs here and there. Um, there's lots of college preparedness programs that um, are aimed at high school students to help them prepare for college and you know, connect low-income students to um, higher education options that they might not fully be aware of. There hasn't been a lot of evidence that this has actually increased um, the, the rate of, of these students, you know, attending higher education. So again, lots of, lots of wasteful spending there. Um, and I, I just think generally um, the, the, the proposed skinny budget looks at these programs and says, is there a record of success? Is there a record of these funds actually um, increasing academic outcomes for students? And if no, then the taxpayers deserve to know that. And uh, uh, putting some fiscal responsibility into the higher education sector is something that we've needed for quite a long time, and it's quite refreshing to see. And so speaking of reforming higher education financing, I know that you recently put out a paper on this, mm-hmm. um, Time for Reform, Time to Reform Higher Education Financing and Accreditation. Uh, just kind of what are some of the key takeaways that you found from that? Yeah. So we, we recently put out a paper, my colleague Jamie Hall here at, um, at the Heritage Foundation, and we put out this paper um, talking about the need of reforms that ha- need to happen to our accreditation system and coupled them with reforms that need to happen to our student loan system. So in this paper, we talked about a lot of things that I just mentioned, how we need to consolidate federal lending, we proposed here putting all federal loans into a one loan program. So right now there are five federal student loans that you can take out. We consolidate them into one loan um, and put a, an annual and a lifetime cap that you can borrow. And so that gets rid of the problem of we can just continually go to the federal government for basically this blank check to attend college. You know, it, it stops at a certain point. Um, hopefully that'll put some downwards pressure on prices. Um, while also coupling those reforms with accreditation reform, which is a huge um, issue in higher education. Because of this rigid and outdated accreditation structure that we have now, it's reinforcing the status quo in higher education. So it's telling the story that if you are a student and you want to achieve economic mobility, a four-year bachelor's degree model is the only option for you. Um, and that's reinforced by our accreditation system, which is um, virtually arms of the of the U.S. Department of Education. So what we um, suggest here um, is uh, enacting the, the HERO Act, which is championed by um, Senator Mike Lee and Representative Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. which uh, decouples federal financing from accreditation and allows states to um, uh, uh, recognize their own accreditors, um, which would put some innovation to the higher education sector. So imagine if... Um, the state of Texas recognized Apple as an accreditor. And then Apple went to the University of Texas and then uh, accredited their computer science curriculum. And then students can sort of you know, have this a la carte education option where they can go around to these different accredited courses and develop their own resume, breaking apart the bachelor's degree idea and just really getting it towards this you know, limited credential, I'm going to streamline my education, you know, take the courses that are going to feed the, or get me towards this goal that I want to achieve while also making sure that every single course that I'm taking has application in the business community because someone accredited it, right? Mm -hmm. And so we think that those reforms that would, um, you know, uh, allow students to, you know, pursue other options besides I'm going to spend, you know, $200,000 in four years at this, you know, brick-and-mortar university, I'm going to streamline my education options, um, while also at the same time making it more affordable 
for for all students and, and for taxpayers down the run. So those are the reforms that, that we talked about in that paper, and we're pretty excited about them. So I guess the question is, is there's proposed budgets. There's all sorts of different ideas floating around. Um, do you see higher education finance reform happening uh, with this Congress or this administration? Hopefully, um, HEA is up for the Higher Education Act um, is up for reauthorization. So, so the, our reason behind talking about about these reforms now is that we hope that with any um, discussion of the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, that conservative policymakers look towards um, the Hero Act, look towards student loan refinancing as sort of a blueprint for reform going forward. Um, because, like I mentioned before, all of these proposed. Um, policies that mask the, the cost of tuition from students do nothing to put downwards pressure on prices. In fact, a lot of these proposals like free tuition are only going to increase college costs in the future. So this is something we need to get fiscally responsible about now so we're not kicking the can down the road for future generations. All right. Well, we know a lot more about student lending and uh, the federal government than we did before. Thank you for joining us and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. Check out Blueprint for Balance, a federal budget. This Heritage Foundation budget plan balances the budget within seven years and cuts spending by more than $10 trillion. To find it, go to heritage.org and search for budget or spending. Welcome back to Mass Ave. We have Tiffany Bates and Elizabeth Slattery from our legal center here with Behind the Bench. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Tiffany. And welcome to Behind the Bench, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Judge Gorsuch's confirmation and swearing in, how the court hazes the newest justice, and what cases the court might take up now that there's nine. So we have nine. Tiffany, can you get us up to speed on what's been happening the last couple weeks? Yes. So last week, the Senate confirmed uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch by a vote of 45 uh, sorry, 54 to 45. Um, but it came after um, four days of hearings and vociferous debate after that. It took some procedural maneuvers to get him there, but the bottom line is he got confirmed. Um, and he's sworn in on Monday by Chief Justice Roberts at the Supreme Court. And then a few hours later, um, he was sworn in again by his former boss, Justice Kennedy, in a public ceremony at the White House. And President Trump was on hand for the public ceremony. And when he was introducing them, he noted that uh, Justice Gorsuch had clerked for Justice Kennedy. And he turned to them and said, do you guys remember that? Uh, And that drew laughs from the crowd. Yeah, like it's something they forgot. (laughs) Um, Also important to note is that uh, Justice Gorsuch bulked tradition and wore a pink tie. Yes. the, The other two gentlemen, President Trump and Justice Kennedy, were wearing the standard power red tie, uh, but Justice Gorsuch, showing his Coloradan spirit uh, of independence, chose pink. Um, So, Elizabeth, what's it going to be like for uh, Neil Gorsuch as the most junior justice? Right. So the justices have a little bit of hazing for their newest member. And uh, one of these uh, one of these activities involves placing the junior justice on what's known as the cafeteria committee. Elena Kagan, who has been the junior justice for the last six plus years, has said that uh, this is a way of bringing uh, bringing the uh, bringing the new justice down uh, down to earth after, um, you know, the confirmation process. And they feel like they're on top of the world. They're a new Supreme Court justice. And then they arrive at the court and they have to discuss, you know, whether the soup is too salty or uh, whether the recipe for chocolate chip cookies in the cafeteria has changed. Uh, Notably, uh, 
one uh, one change that Elena Kagan has brought to the Supreme Court cafeteria is the addition of a frozen yogurt machine, which has been uh, you know much to the uh, pleasure of the people who work at the court and, and visitors of the court. I've actually had it, and they have sprinkles. Which, if you're going to have froyo, you got to have sprinkles. <laughs> so another thing is when the justices meet in conference, which is where they meet to discuss the cases that they've just recently um, had oral argument, and they kind of cast their votes and decide who will be authoring opinions, and they decide which cases they're going to add to their docket— um, the junior justice is in charge of taking notes, and the junior justice is the only person who can open the door. So if a justice forgets his glasses or forgets her coffee cup and emails a clerk or texts their clerk and the clerk brings it to the room, it doesn't matter if that justice is in, in the middle of speaking. The junior most justice has to get up and answer the door. And Justice Kagan has recounted how there have been times when she's been in the middle of a sentence and the door, there will be a knock on the door and the other justices will just kind of look at her uh, waiting <laughs> for her to walk over and, and answer the door. So notably, of course, there there's no handbook for how to be a Supreme Court justice. And uh, one one funny little anecdote uh, that I've read is that um, when Clarence Thomas joined the court, he uh, he said that uh, Byron White said to him, you'll spend the next five years wondering how you got on the court. And then the next five years after that, wondering, how did your colleagues get here? Uh, so that's what Justice Gorsuch has in store as the junior most justice. Um, so speaking of the, the conference that they'll um, be meeting at, um, this moves us into our SCOTUS word of the week, which, which is a writ of certiorari. Now, linguists and lawyers um, are always having spats about how this word's pronounced, um, so we'll just call it by its shorthand, which is cert. So a cert is an order by which a higher court can review a decision of the lower court. So in order to get the Supreme Court to take your case, you have to file a cert petition and ask them to grant it. And um, they'll be discussing the new cert petitions at this conference they're having this week. Um, So, Elizabeth, let's talk a little bit about cases um, and cert petitions that um, the court will be considering. It is, uh, at at the outset, important to to note that this is the first significant opportunity that our new Justice Neil Gorsuch will have to to impact the court's docket. Uh, So first up, let's talk about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Tiffany, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so um, this case deals with whether applying Colorado's public accommodation law to compel a cake baker, in this case, to bake a wedding cake for a gay wedding violates his free speech and free exercise rights under the First Amendment. Now, this case has been um, at conference time and time again, um, so... You know, they might not have had enough votes to grant cert or they were waiting for a new justice because they um, knew he could make the difference. So we should hear some news about that case pretty soon. And, of course, this is not the only case, uh, cake baker case, uh, that is out there. There are also cases involving florists. So um, I think the the issue is one that's being litigated and debated across the country, uh, sort of pitting the gay rights and religious liberty uh, against each other. And um, so I think the issue is ripe for the Supreme Court to, to take one of these cases. So another area that is uh, potentially ripe for Supreme Court review is the Second Amendment. It has been a number of years since the court has heard a Second Amendment case. Um, The uh, landmark decisions in the D.C. and Chicago cases in 2008 and 2010 established that there is an individual right to own a firearm um, for self-defense and keep it in your home. Uh, But since 2010, since that last decision, the lower courts have sort of been grappling with uh, the scope of this right and how how it applies outside of the home. And so one case that is pending before the justices is uh, 
uh, called Peruta, and it involves a, a state's good cause requirement that it placed on uh, applicants for uh, applying for uh, a concealed carry permit. So I think this is an issue that, that we might see come before the court uh, sooner rather than later. There's also a couple um, cases coming up to the court dealing with voting issues. Uh, so first, in a case called Husted out of Ohio, um, the state of Ohio was attempting to clean up its voter rolls by removing deceased voters and other um, ineligible voters. Um, and that landed them in some trouble with the feds for possible violations of the National Registration, um, the National Voter Registration Act. Another uh, case involving uh, voting rights issues is North Carolina's voter ID law, uh, which has been challenged, and a trial court judge uh, relied heavily, I would note, on testimony given by our colleague Hans von Spakovsky in his in the judge's nearly 500-page opinion, which was then overturned by the appeals court, and it is pending before the Supreme Court. And this, uh, this of course, deals with whether states can require voters to show photo ID before they can vote um, in elections. And an interesting quirk in this case, uh, the new North Carolina attorney general um, may have gotten himself into some trouble um, over this case because uh, now he's a lawyer on the case after becoming attorney general. Um, but he was previously a fact witness um, in the trial for this case. Against the law, yes, right? Yes, against the law. Um, and there are uh, state ethics rules that prevent that sort of thing from happening. So that's still playing out. So um, finally, uh, there have been various lawsuits filed seeking to stop the Trump administration's order restricting travel from certain countries. Uh, there have been decisions out of uh, Virginia, Washington State, Hawaii, and uh, many of these are going to the appeals court now. So we think this is uh, an issue that is likely to come before the justices in the next term. Um, so we'll wrap up this week's episode with a round of Supreme Trivia, where I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Bring it on. So the first question is, of the court's current members, who was the longest-serving junior justice? Oh, I know this one. Um, that would be Stephen Breyer. Um, he, that is correct. <laughs> he was appointed by President Clinton, um, and there was quite a span of time before um, Justice Roberts, who was the next justice, joined the court. That is correct, although uh, Roberts joined the court as the chief justice, so I don't think they made him be the junior justice. Uh, but just a few months later, Samuel Alito joined the court, and he took over the role of junior justice. Second question. On the other end of the spectrum, who was the longest-serving justice in history? Ooh, this is a tough one. Um, I'm going to say it was John Paul Stevens. You're close. John Paul Stevens, who stepped down during President Obama's administration, served for 35 years. So very close. But William O. Douglas, who was appointed by FDR in 1939, served for 36 years, 209 days. And I would point out, uh, William O. Douglas, for, for those who are interested in a little bit of history here, he was a champion of civil liberties, uh, but he was also known uh, for having kind of a tumultuous personal life. He had a reputation as a womanizer and a boozer, and he was married four times. So 36 years. I think some of the current justices may be um, coming pretty close to that, though. And that brings us to our third and final question. Of the current members, who has served the longest and for how long? Um, that would be Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, he is the last uh, appointee on the court uh, by President Reagan. Um, I'm going to say he's been on the court for almost 30 years. That's correct. He was appointed in 1988, so he's been there for just around 29 years. Well, that's our show. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time for Behind the Bench. 
Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. If you liked hearing about the issues that Washington's not discussing, check out Underreported, a brand new video series from The Daily Signal looking at other issues that the mainstream media forgot to mention. All right, we are back here with Mass Ave, and we have uh, the managing editor at The Daily Signal, Katrina Trinko, with us to, uh, to discuss the White House Correspondents' Dinner coming up this Saturday. Um, so on Tuesday, the White House Correspondents Association announced that the comedian uh, Hassan Minaj is going to be hosting. Um, kind of a little bit of controversy there is that President Trump's not going to be there to defend himself this year. Um, what is the, the significance of this announcement, Katrina? Well, what's significant about it is Hassan Minaj uh, has made no secret of his animosity towards Trump. You know, it's a free country. That's fine. He's a comedian. But, um, you know, he has referred to Trump as white ISIS. He has said that, you know, one of his goals as a member on The Daily Show was to not get Trump elected. So it's a little bit strange that in a gathering of objective journalists, they pick someone who's not just a critic, but a very vehement critic of the president of the United States. And as you know, some of this, or the White House Correspondents' Center this year seems to have a little bit more controversy surrounding it. What's kind of the background leading up to when they invited him? Well, so normally the president attends the White House mm-hmm. Correspondents' Dinner, and Trump, um, who was famously embarrassed a few years ago at one of these um, such dinners, announced um, months ago that he was not going to attend, which in some ways could be a good thing, even aside from the tensions between the media and the president. It's a little bit odd for a president and reporters that are covering him to be like laughing it up and like it sort of strains objectivity. Yeah. There's been an interesting relationship, it seems, with this administration and the media. Um, they've been citing the media as the opposition party. Um, is there any truth to that statement or to that label? How has, how has their relationship been different than past administrations with the media? Yeah, it does seem like the media is very relentlessly investigating Trump, which, you know, is a good thing. You do want the media to investigate the president. But the question is, where was this investigative energy for the past eight years when Obama was president? And the fact that it seems to be returning in such force suggests that um, it's motivated maybe by personal politics rather than just a desire to get to the truth. And as your role as managing editor of The Daily Signal, have you experienced any of these challenges working with media bias? Yeah, well, I think it's in a way it's been an opportunity for yeah. us. You know, we're very transparent that Daily Signal comes from a conservative perspective and a lot of people are looking for their news outlets to be transparent. You know, if you have a certain perspective, acknowledge that. So in a weird way, it's good for me, even if it's bad for the country. <laughs> yeah, It seems obviously the Daily Signal is very transparent about that, but it seems that a little bit or I guess most publications, it seems to be a little bit more subdued. Um, you reported in an article that you wrote recently at the Daily Signal that 96% of donations given by journalists in 2016 presidential election were to Hillary Clinton's campaign. How do you think those kind of revelations affect the current state of the media? Well, it's just hard to say, you know, if 96% of donations, I believe that went through up of August of last year, um, went to Hillary Clinton from journalists that they are objective. It suggests that there's a huge bias. And often, even if it's not maliciously intentioned, they just honestly may not be talking to anyone in the newsroom who is like bringing up counterpoints and suggesting you should include this or you should quote this person. It's, it shows a bubble. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so it does seem kind of like the the mainstream media has a little bit of credibility issue. Do you think that there are any steps that can be taken for them to improve on this just from your you know, experiences in, in editing? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think if they were serious, they would hire some conservative journalists and that would bring an ideological diversity to the newsroom. I think they could do things like not picking people like Minaj to be the um, entertainer at their dinner. You know, there's just things that they could do that would show that, hey, we have a problem and we're addressing it. And they haven't really done any of them. So that's unfortunate. So kind of, I guess, shifting away from the bias thing, it seems like this year especially, I mean, Emily and I are in the media business as well, uh, it's like a million miles an hour. Uh, It is extremely difficult to pick what you want to cover every day because so many different things are coming out. How do you guys at The Daily Signal differentiate between a topic that you want to write on or cover and one that you don't? Yeah, well, what we look for a lot is um, we we say we focus on policy, not politics. you know, politics, there's so much happening every day. The same is true of policy, but it's less covered. So we try to look at, you know, the way Obamacare is playing out or, um, you know, we've done some stuff on New York's free college initiative. Um, there's so much policy stuff. And it's unfortunately, journalism and politics um, has become a lot more almost celebrity driven. Like Pelosi said that and Schumer said that. And, you know, Jennifer Aniston did this. And it, <laughs> it sort of has the same vibe. And at Daily Signal, we try to you know, cover politics some, but also look at the policies, which will actually in the end affect real Americans. All right, Katrina. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time today. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we'll look for more of your coverage in the Daily Signal's coverage of the White House Correspondents Dinner the following Monday. And that's all we have for Mass Ave. Thanks for listening in and be sure to check us out on Facebook at